0: Hi, I'm Sam, and recently I've been listening to a lot of live music, which naturally led me to some of the best live music performers ever, the Grateful Dead. Today, I'm joined by the publicist and official historian for the dead, Dennis McNally. Welcome, Dennis. How are you today?
1: I am just fine myself. How are you, Sam?
0: I'm doing pretty great. It's uh, not every day I get to talk to someone who's, you know, lived through this much music as you.
1: In all modesty, that's true. Um, I, and I say that only in the sense that I, you know, I was a deadhead before I started working for the band. And I went probably to around 200 shows. And um, uh, then I started working for the band, and I went to all of them for um, something like 12 years. And um, it adds up to more than 1,000 shows, except all my friends say that um, the ones who keep lists, which are a lot of deadheads, there's, there's a certain scholastic, weird side thing to being in the Grateful Dead scene. and they all say that I can't count the ones where they paid me because it's just cheating. So, (laughs) but anyway, I've been at a lot of shows. That is my long-winded way of saying that. So yeah.
0: Well, all right. So how'd you start working with The Grateful Dead?
1: Well, when I was in graduate school, long story short, I uh, started working on a biography of Jack Kerouac, the author of On the Road. And uh, the guy who actually gave me a big shove in that direction was a huge deadhead. And he took me to my first show and, and uh, made me a deadhead. Um, and when he, he suggested Kerouac, in addition to, uh, well, what happened is he said, you should do, I I was talking about, maybe I'll do the beats. And he said, no, you should do Kerouac. His papers are at Columbia, and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. Now, for a broke graduate student to have, you know, a place to stay in New York is gold. Um, And oddly, uh, my parents had moved like 20 miles from where Kerouac was from. So the universe was saying, uh, bozo, do Kerouac. So I did. And in the course of the time that I was working on it, which was seven years i um uh i became a deadhead thanks thanks to his name was chris and so then i said aha i'll do two books uh one is about the counterculture or whatever you want to call it the the bohemian subculture of the 40s and 50s and that's kerouac of course and then Uh, The Grateful Dead in the 60s and 70s. And it took me about 30 years um, because after, so eventually from a good part of my adult life, if you call it an adult life, that's what I did. And so I finished the Kerouac book and I mailed a copy through the Deadhead uh, um, fan mail post office box because I, I didn't know anybody and I didn't have their, you know, I didn't have a phone number. I had no connections. And uh, long, very long story short, I eventually met Jerry and I said, you know, I wrote this book about Kerouac. Did you ever get it? And he was very excited. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not modest about the book. I think I did an okay job. But um, what I had kind of intuitively guessed was that Kerouac, remember, um, this is all now 70 years ago. Uh, anyway, in 1958, uh, Jerry Garcia was uh, going to art school uh, in the Beat neighborhood of North Beach in San Francisco. And his teacher, as a matter of fact, was a very well-known member of the Beat scene. And his teacher sent him down to City Lights bookstore to uh, get, they, they they started talking about the Beat thing, which was like hot news, right? You know, a lot of stories in the paper. And uh, I never, it never occurred to me to ask Jerry, did you buy it or did you lift it? Because... I mean, you know, he didn't have any money, so I, it was a dumb question to miss, but anyway, he read it, it became his Bible, and Kerouac was his life hero from that time on, so he liked my book, and eventually, not so much longer after that, he said, why don't you do us, to which I said, good idea, Um And uh, I started working on a biography of the Grateful Dead and I was working on that for about three years and they needed a publicist and I needed a job. And uh, long story short, Jerry said, why don't you come work for us? And I said, yeah, I think I can handle that.
0: So you were friends with Jerry like far before you joined, I guess, working with... With the band.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, he he made me welcome. And it, as I say, it was kind of like if I had marched up to the Grateful Dead and, and, and with or without credentials and said, I'd like to write a book about you, they'd have all said, take a number. Um, uh, and I had to rig it. So metaphorically speaking, I was hanging out in the corridor waiting for somebody to invite me in. And um, I wrote an article about the Grateful Dead for the local paper in San Francisco, and uh, he liked that too. and that's how I came to meet him. And uh, yeah, um, we, we you know, we were friends, friendly, certainly. and, um, and then eventually what actually happened was that um, the uh, the woman who answered the phones at the dead office, um, uh, the, the guy who had theoretically been the publicist had uh, left for a um, to, to regain his health, shall we say? And uh, they didn't have a publicist, and so when reporters would call, nobody called them back, which they don't understand. They understand if you know, um, you know, that guy Santos down in uh, um, in uh, in uh, Long Island who lied about his resume. I and, think I've uh, heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's he was recently elected uh, to Congress, and every every word in his in his uh, his uh, resume that he presented to the public uh, was a lie. Um, and you can understand, if a reporter calls his office and doesn't get a return phone call, they're not going to expect a return phone call because, <laughs> you know, this is a guy in trouble. Um, but uh, in the showbiz, you know, most most showbiz, they want publicity, they will call you back. But nobody was calling back. And she, and she complained about it, and Jerry said, eh, get McNally to do it, he knows that stuff. Um, and um, I had I had done a tour for my... My Kerouac book, so I had a vague idea. I learned a few things after, but it's not rocket science. And um, I got the job, and eventually, uh, sort of set the book, which I I was three years into at that point. Um, I I put it on on the back burner, and I I literally I, it was just, I, I had a little pocket notebook that I carried around. Um, so when somebody said something funny, I'd write it down. Um, so I was still doing research, but you can't write a biography, and be a publicist at the same time. They're completely different attitudes. So um, f- while I was directly working for the dead when Jerry was alive, I put it on hold. And then eventually the book came out in 2002. And it's called A Long Strange Trip. And uh, you can get it at most good bookstores and certainly at Amazon.
0: Well, all right, so, yeah. That sounds like a good read. And I must say, like I, I looked on... Um, well I was looking you up on on the dead website earlier today cuz I was just curious and I found your like the contract um that said like you're the new publicist I just thought that was so cool like that this contract I guess is is open for people to see
1: oh, they'll put anything on that website um, the best, which they they have not got, because it's one of my, my something I cherish a lot, um, uh, which uh, is in my files and which will stay there, was uh, the a copy of the first press release uh, that I drafted uh, for the Grateful Dead, and I don't know why, whether he was in a silly mood that day or whatever. Jerry J- Jerry refused to be the boss ever um he his opinion obviously carried a lot of weight and decisions had to include him any important decisions had to include him if you wanted to get anywhere but um I so I gave it to him to take a look at it and he he said okay JG on it you know as as though he were a boss and I mean I worked for him for 15 years he he only did that once (laughs) I assure you that was I don't know why he was like I said Either he was making fun of himself or me or both or whatever. Um, But yeah, that's that's uh, that's one odd thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, Jerry Garcia was clearly like one of the greatest musical geniuses ever. Like, what was it like watching him work?
1: The same as it was for, you know, if you were sitting at the show for everybody. I mean, um, I agree that he was one of the great improvisational musicians that ever ever strapped on a guitar. Um, and it's, you know, it's very, I mean, it's really interesting when, when you do get a chance to know him a little bit over, over the course of time. Um, what you, well, one of the first rules I learned working for the Grateful Dead was you never, ever go up to a musician right after the show or an hour after the show and say, great show. Cause they'll look at you nine times out of 10 and, and they'll say, are you kidding me? I stank tonight. Or, are you kidding me? Did you hear what this drummer was doing? Or that, you know, it was terrible, blah, blah, blah. You know, because they were very, they were not egotistical about it. They were very self-critical. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, after a while, when you learned to just leave it, there were a couple, also a couple times when I said, I don't care whether you agree with me or not, that was a great show. And he'd go, and, you know, and they they'd sort of have either grudgingly agree or just say, eh, okay, glad you liked it. Um, because what's going, what's interesting and what he said, the, the, the lesson he had to learn very early on was to let go of opinions, his own opinions about the show. Um, he could spend the whole night saying, my feet hurt, why am I here? I, you know, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And then, and there's a there's a story he told uh, when they were recording uh, an album, the second album, it's called Anthem of the Sun, which blends live and studio together in in on the record. And it's fairly amazing. And um, he and Phil Lesh, the bass player, were like very close. And he 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 got really furious with Phil to the point where he like shoved him. Jerry was not what you call violent. and the, because he thought the music was just it was just catastrophically bad that night. And then they listened to the tape and they ended up using it on the record because it was brilliant. So it was at, kind of at that point, if not, you know, by then at least, that he realized, whatever I think, I just have to let it go. You know, you walk off the stage, you let it go. Um, and, you know, obviously he was human and and there were nights when, there, there was a, uh, one of his girlfriends once told me that, that um, uh, he came home from a show one night and was sitting there and really down, about his playing and he said shoes i could maybe sell shoes because i sure can't play guitar so you know um it's um it's complicated
0: yeah he certainly sounds like a complicated guy like from everything you've said from everything i've read i've heard gosh that's that's crazy he
1: was he was really really smart and he was very um You've heard of, you, you know, you obviously have heard of the concept of IQ, and he had a very high IQ, but he also had a very high EQ. EQ is emotional quotient, as in his feel and understanding for other people was off the charts, uh, which is why you, me, and everybody else wanted to follow him around. Uh, one of my more interesting projects, you're going to get another plug now. One of my more interesting projects was, uh, it's called Before the Dead, and it was a Six LP vinyl box set, which I think came out to four CDs. And it's uh, the folk and, and bluegrass music that he played before The Grateful Dead. And the first, well, the first album side, you know, so the first six or eight songs are from a birthday party uh, that he and uh, Robert Hunter, the lyricist, played for a friend of theirs. Jerry had been out of the, uh, Jerry got out of the army, which is a his, uh, hysterical concept in itself, Jerry in the army. Uh, But it was a different time. And in in like January of 1961, and this is in June, maybe July. And uh, so he'd been out for about five months. He'd been playing acoustic guitar for six months. And it's basic, you know, acoustic guitar. But you can hear in this tape, um, you can hear the room, not treating him like a god, but you can you can feel the way he has the audience. It's a small, yeah, it's a birthday party. It's a small room, it's somebody's living room. Um, you can hear the way people are sort of hanging on every note and hanging on him, and and uh, it's uh, it's fascinating. And I, 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 he was eighteen, um, and he got better.
0: Wow. So you worked on like I guess it it wasn't a bootleg, but some something on like the likes of that, like pre, pre-Dead Garcia distribution.
1: Uh, yeah. The, the, uh, Jerry Garcia estate actually hired me to, to be the producer wow. uh, of, and as I say, it's called Before the Dead. Hmm. And there's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good. You know, I mean, if you like acoustic music, especially bluegrass c- and it's fascinating to those of us who are interested in Jerry, because, you know, like I say, that first, the, those first few tracks, um, He's like strumming folk guitar. He's, You know, he's pretty basic. Of course, in three years, which is, this is in summer of 61, and it runs up until the fall of 64. So it's basically three years. He's a monster. By then, he's playing banjo, and he's a really first-grade professional banjo player. Wow. So, you know, he grew fast mostly because that's all he did in those three years was play
0: yeah well were you ever into like the trading thing like with tapes
1: Uh, not so much mostly because um fortunately for me people just gave me them you know i mean one of the wonderful things about being a deadhead in a little earlier days and not to dismiss um the uh you know the ease with which you can download almost anything now was the the sociability of people uh you know people would have their list this is what i have this is what i want and they'd you know put it in an envelope lick a stamp put the stamp on it mail it to somebody mail them blank you know blank cassettes they'd make them for them it, it created the community uh, that, you know, that's one of the reasons why now, where that's, you know, obsolete, um, why people um, who were doing that in the very, you know, pretty much in the early 80s, it didn't really get, I mean, it, it started in the mid 70s, taping uh, and, and exchanging tapes. It really picked up steam in the 80s. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful thing because it, it was, it, it, it. You made friends. Uh, And among other things, that meant, for instance, uh, if you were in New York and you were, you know, trading with some guy in Seattle and there was a Seattle show that you went to, you might end up sleeping on his floor because, you know, it was a place. I mean, nobody had any money and, and, or not not nobody, but lots of people didn't have any money or much money. Um, And like I say, it created community. And it was, that was one of the best, one of the two great things
0: about the grateful dead wow yeah that's crazy i remember um i asked my dad because my dad's a huge deadhead um he i asked him like you know what happened with you and your friends when jerry died and he said like he had all his friends over and they like listened to all their their favorite stuff It, it just sounds like a total like yeah community grateful dead thing
1: and it was. and and the point is that that you know he didn't take himself seriously as a star and, and nobody else did either. That's, that's why his nickname was Uncle Jerry. you know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't as though uh, he was some kind of a god. um, um but um uh, he people felt felt connected to him as a person. And that's what I mean by charisma in his case. you know, there's there's I don't know Picasso had charisma, obviously. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the warmest charisma, uh, in a sense, you know, he, he was sort of remote. Jerry was like, you know, he dressed the same as we did. He smoked the same joints we did. Well, he had better pot, but anyway, <laughs> uh, and it, you know, he was a person and what the grateful they were doing up there was not a show. It was, I mean, it, it was a show in the sense that you paid money and you went in and you heard a show, but it was a, um, it was them revealing what was going on in their minds and hearts that night. Uh, it was spontaneous. It was in, it was improvisation, and they were they were you know letting you peek into their psyches. Um, the Grateful Dead became the Grateful Dead, really, in, uh well they actually changed their name in November of 65 but right around that time from November until January of 66 they played the acid tests they 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 weren't playing you know any kind of conventional situation and in the acid tests people would gather together Uh, and everybody would do LSD. Everybody paid to get in, including Jerry. Everybody paid a buck to get in. And it's also true that at the end of the night, the Grateful Dead and, in fact, the Merry Pranksters, a guy named Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, who were putting on these these parties, uh, would divide up the money. So, you know, it's not an absolute uh, thing. But the fact is that during those events, and they started out at somebody's home with 50 people, and they ended up in a big hall in San Francisco with 5,000 people in like three months, which is insane. Um, and in that period, they experienced what it was like to play or not play, because there were nights when they didn't particularly play, um, in which they weren't the show. The show was everybody in the room. They were just the soundtrack. And there's a big difference because it means you relating to that audience, You know, the people not playing instruments, as partners, not as people that you're, you know, that you have to amuse or arouse in some way. Um, And, you know, that's the exact opposite of showbiz. And generally speaking, um, The Grateful Dead sort of broke every rule of show business ever. Um, And, I mean, they didn't have a show. There was no dance. I mean, you know, the lights were primitive at least until much later. Um, And even then, the the lighting director once asked... um, ask for a bigger budget and jerry's comment was give it to her maybe maybe she's why they come because god knows you know it can't be us
0: gosh wow well that yeah that's really neat um that i guess uh, as much as the people were going to see them they were going to i guess see the people that's that's a really interesting i guess uh it's mindset. A, it's, a,
1: it's a very different mindset from everybody else. Everybody else, virtually, has um, you know a set list in you know usually the same set list every show of a tour. Maybe there's one slot that you change or whatever. You play the song the same way. Jerry hated playing stadiums. Um, he did it because we had to do it because by the, by the late '80s the crowds were so large. You know the only thing that would hold them was in the summer when people weren't in school was was uh, stadiums, but Jerry's comment was that in a stadium you have a guy in the last row, and it turns the music into a cartoon. You can't be very subtle. You can't be very nuanced. You really, really need to make sure that that guy in the last row gets a show, and that's that was not what he was there for. He would much, much rather have played, stayed in, you know, maybe not necessarily a club because for starters clubs are noisy, um, but a small theater for the rest of his life. But he was he became a victim of his own success.
0: Wow. Huh. Well, as well as doing publicity for The Grateful Dead, you've also done publicity for Little Feet and others. What's your favorite all-time publicity moment?
1: I'll tell you a story. It was the only time I ever went around him. Uh, we had a keyboard player named Brent Midland who who died, and uh, they had to. It really, it really hard out of Jerry. Um, he felt he it wasn't he was he certainly wasn't personally responsible uh, for Brent, but it felt like the great, the whole grateful dead ethos which was you know not the guys on stage but the whole thing had sort of consumed brent long story short and and not really fair because brent had some some personal issues from high school i you know elementary school whatever um but anyway, so they they had uh, auditions, which he hated. I mean, he did not want to judge people. Uh, and, and that's what you're doing when you're auditioning new new members for your band. And they hit a guy named Vince Welnick. I went up to Joe, I said, well, you know, how do you want to handle the announcement about Vince? And the, he was depressed about the whole situation and, you know, why they had done it and because uh, of Brandon. Uh, so he sort of, he didn't snap at me, but he just said, no, we're, we're not going to make an announcement. They'll find out when we play our next show. Enough. And what he was really saying is, I don't want to deal with this, leave me alone, uh, which I was smart enough to realize. And I said, uh, the, the the deal being, as a publicist, our next show is going to be in Cleveland. The local newspaper there is called the Cleveland Plain Dealer. The idea that the Plain Dealer was going to get a, a national scoop on who the new keyboard player for The Grateful Dead was, was not really in the band's interests, okay? For starters, we had the San Francisco Chronicle, which had been covering the band at that point for 25 years. You know, you I could not burn them so i went uh-huh and shut up and i'm smart sometimes and i i was smart enough to say, to say nothing and uh went away and so i went home and i called up the rock critic at the, the chronicle and i said i have a scoop for you but it's off the record and when you say off the record that means they can't use it and um and i was i wanted to bust his chops a little bit so he um he said well that does me a lot of good if it's off the record I say, listen, son, I'm going to teach you the newspaper. He, he'd already been, he'd been at the Chronicle just about as long as the Grateful Dead had been playing. So, you know, he was a serious vet. And I said, don't worry about it. I'm going to teach you how to do the newspaper business. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, this is off the record. So I'm going to tell you who the new keyboard player is. And then you're going to call up your good buddy, Mickey Hart, who's uh, who's the drummer and who was his close personal friend. And, um, and ask him who the new keyboard player is. Now... Jerry can tell me to shut out, but he's never gonna do that to another band member. And you're gonna get your story and everybody's happy. And Jerry's not gonna give a, a damn, because like I say, what he was really saying to me was, I don't want to deal with this. I do not want to make decisions, you know, leave me alone. Um, and that's the way it worked out. So that was one of, you know, that was one of my favorite uh, moments. It was, as I say, um, I, was, I was paid to deal with, you know, that's what a publicist does. But I was in a sense paid to protect the band uh, from themselves sometimes if they did something dumb, which they didn't usually do, but it would have been dumb not to not to you know do what I did if i I think.
0: Yeah, well, all right. and as as well as publicity, you've written, I mean a bunch of books. you've done the the dead books, you've you've done all sorts of stuff. but one that is particularly interesting to me and I certainly really want to read is um on highway sixty one music, race, and the evolution of cultural freedom. Could you tell me a little bit about that book?
1: Well, you know, so I did my Kerouac book first, and that's about the 50s, boiling it down. And then The Grateful Dead is about the 60s. And when I was, uh, I got, um, the only time I was ever really depressed in my life was when I finished that first, that Kerouac book, and it came out, and I ran around doing publicity for it and such for about six months, five months, whatever. And... Uh, then I felt it. it's called postpartum depression. You know, women who give birth sometimes, you know, your whole life is centered around this growing thing inside you. There's some parallels here. Um, and then you give birth and then it's like, there's a, there's a song by a woman named Peggy Lee. It's a marvelous song. And that's what you're feeling with postpartum depression. You know, that it? it's It's over? And so I fell into this depression, which really um, lasted for a couple months and then eventually um jerry said do grateful dead and you know i've been busy ever since so when i was near the end of the grateful dead book i said hmm better avoid postpartum depression what are you going to do next and i said well let's do the background to all of this so i went i started reading and reading it was interesting you know with those first two books i had a specific subject you know it came ready made you know the life of kerouac the life of the grateful dead Uh, this, I, oh God, the first year, I, I, I didn't quite, quite, what I was looking for, what I, what I finally realized what I was doing, it took me a while to figure out what I was doing, was the effect that black music has had on white, mostly youth and white bohemia. Uh, the people that didn't fit in to conventional thinking in America, um, I started with a guy who actually had nothing to do with black music, but but with black culture, namely Thoreau, uh, who was a uh, very active abolitionist and who was, you know, greatly concerned with slavery and ending it. So that's in the 1850s. And I might add a whole set of ideas um, about uh, the idea that 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 we are part of nature and not uh, owners of nature. That nature isn't there to serve us, but we are there possibly to live with it, just as an example, um, and a million other concepts. Really, the, the most revolutionary thinker for considering his time, the 1850s, um, the most revolutionary thinker in American history. And so it starts with Thoreau, and then it goes to Mark Twain, who writes this. And if you have, I'm sure you've read it. If you haven't read it lately, you might go back and, and read Huckleberry Finn, which is absolutely one of the most subversive, satirical books about slavery um, and about, um, about America, ever. And uh, this goes on to Ragtime, which was the first American popular music, which was, came from black people. And which started people dancing in ways that they never had, in which they touched each other. Which, believe it or not, was unique in the early 20th century. Um, You know, nobody—you might touch fingertips when you waltzed, but it was—it was a very different thing. Um, There's a there was a famous Broadway play where you know they blame all the all the ill social ills on ragtime uh, because it really did change things socially. Uh, And this goes on through up to Jack Kerouac and On the Road, uh, which is basically a book about uh, white, young white men and jazz. And uh, it ends with Bob Dylan, who brought black music, uh, which was rock and roll and white his country music the woody guthrie kind of stuff that he also played and he put it all together lyrically and um yeah it's a pretty good book if i say so myself
0: yeah well i certainly really really want to read it and i've been watching out every bookstore i go to i've been like like seriously i've been looking for this book um well
1: it, it was a small press so I'm afraid you may have to pay Jeff Bezos for it and uh, and uh, go to Amazon. Well, all right. Yeah.
0: I, I will be sure to do that. And thank you so much for talking to me, Dennis. Like, hearing about your time with The Dead, like, being a publicist, getting to meet and, like, getting to know, really, like, Jerry and the rest of the band, that's, it's been incredible to hear your story. And I'm sure it must have been incredible living it.
1: Uh, it was fun. It was definitely fun.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Take care. I'm Sam, and I hope you liked that interview with Dennis McNally, the publicist and official historian for the band The Grateful Dead. Dennis has also written many books on the dead, as well as music and race issues. So if, if you're interested in any of those topics, make sure to check him out. And if you like this interview, make sure to listen to my back pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any podcasting platform to listen to other great interviews just like this one.